Well, I began this uh, series uh, way out of order. Uh, several, several weeks ago, I got a call that Lance was sick, and so uh, in the midst of our situation, with all the turmoil going on, my heart was drawn immediately to our mission given by the Lord. Not the Great Commission, right? That could go there, certainly, but I, I love this passage on being salt and light. And so I, I started in the, in the Sermon on the Mount out of order, and I went and I started at Matthew five thirteen through 16. But then because some more dates opened up, I, I just, I said, okay, if I'm going to preach some more, let's go backtrack and start at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we started going through the Beatitudes. So this is the third week of that. In case you're wondering why we're not going on next week to 13 through 16, because it's out of order and that's just what happened. Uh, but this is an amazing uh, uh, sermon and we just did it as men's ministries, and it was just a wonderful study. And, and each, each time we're just digging into it, I would just feel like we're just being hit with a baseball bat. Because as wonderful as this sermon sounds, it's a, just mind-blowing to think, I can't live this way. Anyone else feel that? I mean, because look at these characteristics just in the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are those who... These, these are characteristics of the people who are in his kingdom. It's not something you do to be in the kingdom, but it's those who are in the kingdom. But I look at these poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure. I fail all the time in these. Anyone else? Okay, so we're on the same boat, and that's good because this is actually, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that we can't be this way on our own. We need the king to do something. But that draws us all the way back to Matthew 4, 17, where we read earlier. It's repenters are the ones who get to be in the kingdom. Those who repent of their sin, who don't say, hey, I deserve to be in this kingdom because I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. Because that's the crowd he's talking to. They thought, hey, we're children of Abraham. We're in. And he's saying, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, his cousin, John the Baptist, had just said the same thing. Repent to the Jews. So what's happening here in Israel is, is things are being shaken up. And I hope as we read this, these words, the living word, God recording this so we would know and we would hear it today, that we would be shaken up a little bit too. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that as you see this Jesus teaching us, that you would see and be overwhelmed, one, at your own sin. And by the way, we're no better than you. If we're a Christian, doesn't mean we're sinless. It means our sins have been forgiven. And that's the offer the king gives. But it's only if you repent of your sin. And I, I began in, in verse 12 because it, it says that Jesus, he withdrew to the northern part of Israel. That area was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Because even back in Isaiah's day, this prophecy, verses 15 and 16, in Isaiah's day, 700 years before, Gentiles came in, or the Jews are in contact with the Gentiles because, and this is where it's good to know geography, Israel is on the coast, right? And there's a highway called the Way of the Sea. It's like an international highway. Okay, think of it like PCH. Eh, maybe more like 101. So it's, it's an international highway. And then inland, there's the way of the king. All right? So these were two major highways that would connect uh, Europe, what we call Europe and Asia, to Africa, to Egypt down there. So they would come, and there was one crossover highway. There were several, but the main one was up. It would begin on the coast around what we call... Uh, Mount Carmel area. It would go all the way across past Lake, the, the Sea of Galilee. 
right past Capernaum. It was a city right on that little highway. So the Jews would have regular contact with the Gentiles up in the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem was hard to get to. It was up in the mountains, and it was hard to get to. So there wasn't a highway going through the capital of Israel, but it was up north. So the Jews had regular contact with them. And, and notice that when Jesus began his ministry, it started up there because he was fulfilling prophecy that the light would dawn in Galilee of the Gentiles because the point of Israel was to be a light to the nations, according to Isaiah 42. They were to be a light drawing people to the God of Israel, Yahweh, the true God. Jesus came to that dark region as the light. What does he say that we're supposed to be in Matthew 5, verses 15 and 16? You are the what? Light of the world. The king has come bringing light, and his people are to do the same. We see what's going on here. His message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That repentance is what puts you in the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' kingdom. We see, him, we see the king here because Matthew is, is the most Jewish of all the gospels. It was written about 20, 20 years after Jesus had, had died on the cross and uh, risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. It was, it was an apologetic to the Jews saying this Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. You missed him, but you don't have to. You can still meet him. And you see all the way through Matthew all these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus. Boom, just one after another. In the first three chapters, it's, it's basically, hey, this Jesus, the king, he has the right credentials. He came from the right line. His birth was attended by angelic visitations. It, there's a divine birth. And then, and then we have the, the visit of Magi who affirm, they're the kingmakers of the East, by the way. They weren't just smart guys. These were the ones who were the kingmakers. They would affirm the new king of whatever empire, especially the Persian empire. Well, they came, and what did they do when they, when they came? They were asking for, where is it he who has been born king of the Jews? And when they saw him, oh, this isn't him, and they left. Did they say that? No, they brought him gifts befitting a king, and they what? It says they worshipped him. Whoa. And then that whole section is capped off when, when we have God himself affirming from heaven at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The king is here. Now, what's this deal of going out in the wilderness? Well, here's the deal. Adam, face to face with Satan, failed. Israel in the wilderness under temptation failed. Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus face to face with Satan, triumphs. He won his victory. The light has dawned. Jesus the king is here proclaiming his kingdom. And that's where we come. We see Jesus begin his ministry, repent. But then what is it followed up with? Miracles. Look at Look at the miracles that are going on. This is no, oh, my back is hurting. Oh, I feel better now. These are people who were paralyzed. And they get up at his command. And they get up. Their muscles aren't atrophied anymore. They get up, walk away, carrying some of them, jumping and leaping. These were public miracles, powerful miracles, indisputable miracles, Seen by both followers and enemies. Public. 
radical. All sorts of diseases and infirmities, sicknesses, physical deformities. It was amazing. His fame spread out throughout all of Israel and north of Israel and and east of Israel. This is not some country bumpkin that you hear about maybe doing miraculous stuff by some of his devoted fanatics. This was done everywhere. I mean, to everyone who came. The only way they disputed Jesus' miracles was what? His power, where it came from to do them. They didn't say it was from God. They said it was demonic because they couldn't deny that he did miracles. So this this Jesus, the people are flocking to him. And that's where we come to the Sermon on the Mount. This wasn't just a few devoted people. This is crowds. But his disciples are here to sit and listen, and we get to listen in with them. So that's the Sermon on the Mount, folks. This, This is no quiet group of 20 And off in a corner, this is on a mount so he can teach the people. And there's crowds there. And we see him in in verse, he opened his mouth and taught them. And then he lists out the Beatitudes. I've got to open up my notes here. But as you look at the Beatitudes, again, each one of them is just, uh, okay, blessed are are those who, and then this character trait, you're like, oh man, I, I fail in so many ways. But this is the king declaring about the people who have listened and obeyed his message because he commands. By the way, the gospel is a command. The gospel is not, oh, please do. No, the gospel is a repent. A gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about you need to obey the call of God to be forgiven, to cry out for salvation. That's what Jesus is doing. He says, repent. It was a command. Repent. And we have this listing of of character traits of his people who have repented. They're poor in spirit. I I recognize that I can't earn entrance into this kingdom based on me. It's 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 a lack of arrogance. I don't deserve entrance. That's a poor in spirit person who is characterized as blessed. It's a person who mourns because I see my sin and there's a recognition of the ugliness of sin and what, that, what, that, uh, what it's going to cost for the forgiveness of that. It's a mourning because I grieve at my ugly sin before the holy and righteous God. That person's blessed. Not someone saying, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm good compared to somebody else. No, they mourn at their sin. They're not looking at others. They're looking here to God. Meek. Blessed are the meek, someone who's humble before God and humble in relationship to others. There's a humble heart and a humble life in recognition that before God, I'm nothing. Lord, I need your help. They're a person who, as they see God and see what he offers in his mercy and his compassion, there's a a thankfulness. And that thankfulness and love motivates them to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to be like that God. I want to walk in his ways. That's a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. If you remember the illustration I used last week is when we were playing, when I was training for soccer as a college athlete out in the 95 plus degree heat, days like today, but third stage smog alerts. Anytime there's a water break, we didn't saunter over to the water. What did we do? You want to see a sprint, that was a sprint. You're running to get water, that was hungering and thirsting, that drive for what you need to survive. 
hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a driving desire to pursue Christ-likeness. That's, that's beatitude number four. How many of you failed so far in this listing? Man, all the time. Blessed are the merciful. These are the people who extend mercy because they've received mercy. I can't believe God would give this to me. And then you see others and you want to extend that mercy and offer that mercy to others through Jesus Christ. What is mercy? The withholding of the punishment we do deserve. A merciful person says, you know what? I did deserve it. I do deserve it. But by the grace of God, I'm forgiven. And then you offer it freely to others. And then blessed are the pure in heart, that single-mindedness, that devotion to pursuing God in his ways. You're, you're wanting more and more to not have a, a faith in, in righteousness you talk about, but then you live a different way. You want to see the two come together. In living, your, your walk matches your talk. A pursuing of holiness in your devotion to God. So those are just the first beatitudes that we've covered. But now we have peacemakers and persecuted. And that's what we'll look at today. And and folks, now we're going to start getting, not now, we are getting into some areas where we fail miserably. How many of you have ever been in a conflict with somebody in your family? Everyone get your hands up. You're breathing human beings. How many of you have ever had conflict with a friend or a coworker or at church? Ooh, I know. Let's keep our hands up, right? But folks, this is where it gets really practical. And then persecution. Persecution is a gift. Did you know that? It's just a rejoice when you're persecuted. Oh, we'll get to that. So let's start with peacemakers. And again, I turned this into a plea. Lord, help me to bring peace and reconciliation like you did. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the character is a peacemaker. What is peace? It's the shalom or the rest or the wholeness, that, that peace with God, no matter your circumstances. The peace that Jesus gives is not the absence of trouble, but it's the confidence that he's there with you in the trouble. Get that? It's not, oh, peace, I'll have a peaceful life. It's no, I will have peace in the midst of life. Trials are coming. If you're not in the midst of a trial, there's one coming. That's just life. We're in a sin-stained world. And people sin, and you sin, and that means there's going to be troubles. All under the sovereign hand of God, all accomplishing his purposes for sure. But I want that peace in the midst of it. That's what he says. That's what we get from God. We get his peace. But here's the, here's the deal. When you become a Christian, Romans 5 says you are justified now, declared innocent, and you're no longer an enemy of God. You're at peace with God. And you get to walk in newness of life. Isn't that great? But here's the hard part. We now have to be peace, not enjoyers, peacemakers. And that's where it gets hard. It gets really hard. But but this is just calling us to live like Jesus. Because what does Isaiah 6 say about one of his titles? He's, He's called in Isaiah 6, he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. So we, this is an imitation of him. It's passing on the peace that he's brought and passing it on to others. His, he, his work is to bring the peace of God and, and bring peace to men. We see this prophesied in Isaiah 52. 
Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Oh, what's another word for the good news? Gospel. Who publishes peace. That should bring to mind Ephesians 6, the armor of God. People who are, whose feet are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Right? That's part of our armor is to bring the peace. It's what we bring to people, the peace of God. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. That's the peace we get from God and the peace we get to tell others about. The Messiah's character of peace is actually our ministry. When we get this peace from God, his work of ministry actually becomes our ministry. You may have heard that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? That's that great exchange. It's unfair to Jesus, but he did it for our sake so that in Christ we're now righteous before God. But you know what? The verses before say something about peace and this ministry of peace. Listen to this. Verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Reconciled means to bring two parties together who were at war, to be at peace. Through Christ reconciled us to himself and just enjoy your salvation. No, it doesn't say that. It says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to be reconcilers. Another word is peacemakers. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We now have this message. God did not need us to do anything. He doesn't need us. But he's chosen to save us and then to use us to accomplish his ends. And one of the things that we, we bring the message of reconciliation. We're the announcers of it. He doesn't say just the message. Listen to this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Imperfect megaphones for sure. But he's still chosen to use it. That's amazing. But let's look at that word ambassador. I lived in Brazil when I was 12. Went with my grandparents there for two years. We lived in Brasilia. It's the capital of Brazil. It was Back in 79, this is, the city had been built uh, out, out in the middle of nowhere. It's like in Kansas City. Brazil's huge, same size as the United States, but the interior was vastly underpopulated. So they built their capital there to draw people out from the coast. So it was a planned city, and it was, you know, sporad, you know small. And the embassy there was the American embassy. And, and one of the treats for us was on the 4th of July, they'd have a big barbecue for all the expats, all the Americans living there. And so we would go, and they'd have all this barbecue and soccer games. It was so fun. I was a junior higher. couldn't be having more fun. But the man who we got to meet was the ambassador. And, and this man would have these huge... Marines hanging out with him because he was the man 
representing the United States in Brazil. That ambassador wasn't just a regular man. He had guards. He had authority because he was the spokesman for who? The president of the United States. So what he said in dealings with you know, other dignitaries, but especially whoever was leading Brazil at that time or other countries and other when they're talking, it carried weight. That ambassador had weight. He was representing the mightiest country to another country. Folks, we're ambassadors. Not for the United States, but for who? The Prince of Peace. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation to be declarers of, but not just in word, but in life. That's, that's what he says. And we implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, but don't forget who's in the crowd listening. We've heard about the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We have the disciples. We have the regular people. But there's also another group in Israel at that time. They were called terrorists by the Romans, freedom fighters by the Jews. Who am I talking about? The zealots. Oh, by the way, one of them was a disciple. Jesus had quite the mixture of guys there. Zealots were known for being assassins. They would, you know, they would kill you know, Roman soldiers and, and anyone working with the Romans. These are not nice guys, but they're hearing from a guy claiming to be the Messiah. In their mind, when the Messiah comes, what's he going to do to the Romans? Squash him. He's a mighty victory, victorious, powerful guy. That's what the Messiah is going to do. But Jesus is saying, blessed are the terrorists. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, folks, don't, don't get me wrong. In Revelation chapter 19, what is Jesus going to do? Oh, he's coming with power and might, and there's going to be much judgment. Read Revelation 19. But when Jesus came, he wasn't coming to deal with the Roman Empire. That's a passing empire. It was gonna, it's been gone already, right? There's other empires before. There'll be other empires. The United States is not going to be here forever. He was dealing with the worst enemy of mankind, sin, death, Satan. And here he is. Blessed are the what? Peacemakers. Whoa. So you understand when they're hearing this like, okay, something's, this, it's not jiving. They're not getting it. But that's good. Because isn't that what Jesus does? He, he turns things upside down on us. And what's the reward? They'll be called sons of God. Got to remember again, the Jews, they thought by virtue of birth, they were the children of God, the people of God. He's saying, no, you have to repent to be in my kingdom, and if this is if that's if you are in my kingdom, one of your roles is you're a peacemaker and you're called a son of God. And it's just it, it's it's amazing. How did Jesus how did God take care of our problem? He sent his son to die, but why? For God so loved the world. The amazing love of God on display in sending Jesus. Because he wanted to bring peace to us. The peace of God through Jesus Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. John 3.1 That we should be called the children of God. Think of that. How many of you act like Jesus? All the time. Oh, ouch, right? But we are called 
the sons of God, children of God, if we're in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Do you think God's merciful? If you don't, you need to understand what's being said here. It's amazing. Now before, going to Galatians 3, verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith when he came and you believe in him. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Folks, there is no uh, adjective next to Christian. White Christian. Black Christian, rich Christian, poor Christian, just Christian. We're all one in Christ. Why? Because of the peace of God through Jesus Christ. But then he calls us <laughs> to be peacemakers who, yes, bring the message of peace between God and man. But here's the deal. It's not just God and man. That's salvation. But it's also man to man. I've already asked, how many of you have been in conflict before? We all have. Not all conflict is bad. Sometimes it's just disagreement over, it's over like little things, not sinful issues. But we're good at making those little things into sinful issues. How? And how we disagree. <laughs> Our emotions get worked up and we don't want to give in. We want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And I'm going to get after you if you get in my way. I know I exaggerated, but that's the downward spiral of conflict. When I want what I want, Right? Whoo! And in conflict, how many of you react, you know what, you're right. You know, that's so, such a good point. I really am a, just a terrible person, and you're right. And how many of you, how many of you have that internal defense lawyer that, that rises up? Anyone? Oh, mine, mine's quick. I pay him well. <laughs> Ask Renee. But, folks, we all have that where we want to win. We don't apply Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Right? Considering others what? As better than ourselves? As more important? And considering their needs? We don't put on the mind of Christ. We don't put on Christ who in verse, verse 5 says, He humbled himself to come and die, to come as a man and to suffer. And then we also have in chapter 2, you have Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul, also examples of humble service, sacrificial for others. We don't do that, do we? I want to be served. Anyone else like me? Yeah, you are. I know most of you. Yes, you are. You're sinners, sinners too. But, but saved by grace. Because the peacemaker has come. We have this ministry, and we've been entrusted with this message about salvation, but it's more than just that. They, we, get to, we get to apply this peace into our relationships. Romans 12, 18. If possible, because it's hard, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul, writing to the Ephesian Christians, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It says, here's a worthy walk, and here's what it's described as. With all humility 
and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, putting up with each other, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When you become a Christian, you become part of the family of God. You're a child of God, a son, daughter of God. But here's the deal. You are saved into a family of other Christians. So we look around, we look around, just look around. You're located, you don't have to look at me right now, just look around. You're looking at, if you're a Christian, you're looking at your forever family. Now we won't look like this, we'll have glorified bodies. Do I hear an amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. I spent the day, the beach on, fri- on Friday teaching kids how to surf and I am so sore. <laughs> I'm feeling all my 53 years. But all that being said is that, look, when you're saved, you've been brought into a body and it says that you are unified. He has put you in Christ into his family. But we're supposed to work hard at what? We're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in how? The bond of peace. It's in that maintaining and working hard. That's, that's where the trouble lies, is it not? Folks, I've been to churches. I've been a part of churches where conflicts would come up. And oh my goodness, it's terrible when it's, it's Christians who are the source of it and who won't let go of it. Matter of fact, Paul, uh, Paul had to you know, ask a brother to step in between two women in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. He says, hey, can you go help them get unified? Why? Because it has a terrible witness to a watching world. Everyone turn to, to the Lord's Prayer. Everyone learn to turn to the Lord's Prayer. Not Matthew uh, 6. That's not the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. Go to John 17. Everyone go to John 17, and we'll just look at just verse 20. It says it in other places, but just one verse, or actually 20 and 21. That'll help us. I do not ask for these only. This is Jesus talking to God the Father. It's this, that's why it's called the high priestly prayer or the prayer of Jesus. And he says in the middle of it, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples, so he's talking about someone else. Who? But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Through the disciples preaching, people will believe. Hey, that's us. He's talking about us here. What does he say? That they may all be one, unified. Okay? Just as, oh, here's what it's supposed to look like. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. What? So what kind of relationship should we have with each other? Now, this is true. In our position, we are unified with each other. But practically, what should it look like? What kind of relationship should we have at church. Folks, deep ones. Your best friends. Now, this is, doesn't work out all that, that time all the way. I mean, it doesn't always work out that way all the time. But your goal should be have your closest friends being Christians. Not to the, you can't, it's not saying forsaking non-Christians. We need to be in the world being their friends. But folks, we are to practically love each other. I'm not making this up. Listen to what he says here. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Don't miss the, the depths of this. 
We are to care for each other deeply. So that, oh, there's a result. There's a something here that's, that comes from this. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. What? He's saying that our love and unity with each other has a testimony. It's a witness to who? He says it right there. To who? The world. Our love for each other, however it looks practically, needs to be something that declares to the world they really do love each other and I don't know why. And then they'll ask, what is the reason for the hope you have? What is the reason for this kind of love? Guys, our unity as a church has an incredible testimony. That's why we're supposed to be peacemakers in the church. And certainly with non-Christians to be people who are known for peace. But folks, it has to start in the church. It has to start. It has to be played out. The gospel brings peace. The church of God is supposed to be exemplary, supposed to be just characterized by peace because the king brings peace and he calls us to bring peace. And folks, their conflict is supposed to happen. It is. Because doesn't say, doesn't there, isn't there a verse that says that all things work together for good? That means that God does use conflict. Well, what does he use to do? He, it shows our own sin. It helps bring sin to the surface. So why? So we can be further conformed to the image of Christ. It also teaches us how to be peacemakers, more humble, because we see people we love. And if we're trying to help them, we want to love them both, not taking sides. And we learn how to bring peace to our brothers and sisters. How many of you have been in a long-standing conflict with somebody or a group of people? Have any of you over your life? I have. How does it make you feel? Conflict ever feel good? What happens when there's reconciliation and forgiveness and a restoration? What happens? A little bit of joy, tiny bit? You guys are not very reactive here. I want more nodding. I want some of this. I know you guys have experienced this too. The reconciliation that happens when there's forgiveness, the joy that happens at restored relationship. Folks, that's what we need to be about because God uses conflict to help change and grow us. In the realm of peacemaking, right, the middle part of peacemaking is compromises, give and take, yielding to each other, overlooking minor offenses. But, but forgiveness needs to be brought in when there's serious offense, right? And when you forgive, you grant forgiveness when somebody asks for it, by the way, right? You need to be willing to forgive, but until they ask for it, right, they, that, that transacts, forgiveness is a transaction because then you grant forgiveness when they ask for it and that settles things, right? But then in forgiveness, you make several commitments. One, I won't bring it up again. Two, I won't bring it up as an accusation against you. Three, I won't bring it up to others about you. And four, I won't dwell on it. And if it's something that I'm holding on to, you don't need to ask for forgiveness again. I need to deal with my own forgiveness in God. Those are the commitments of forgiveness, all right? That's that's one of the key things. But here in the realm of peacemaking, there's peace faking and peace breaking. Peace faker. Oh, that's not my deal. You know, that's that's their deal. I don't get involved in this. Or, or, you know what? They said those things, but whatever. 
You just never deal with it. You run away from it. You know what the worst end of that is? The end of peacemaking? Suicide. Because what is suicide many times? Trying to get revenge. You're so angry, you don't work for peace to kill yourself. I'm out of here. The other end is peace breaking. You go towards conflict. You cause conflict. You're the one who never wants to lose. You can't, you'll, you won't let go of it. And the end of that, oh, Cain, what did Cain do? Killed his brother. So peace breaking, peace faking. We're supposed to be peacemakers. That's what we're called to be. And folks, it takes hard work. It takes somebody getting upset at you sometimes because you brought up something hard. Or they bring it up to you. Oh, ouch. Oof. But you know what? Real love takes those risks. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Galatians 6. We are commanded, folks, to help people get dirty. Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if you see anyone caught in a transgression, ensnared in a habitual sin, not just they sinned once, but they're stuck in sin, they're not walking in the Spirit because Galatians 5 ends with that, and you go right into Galatians 6. It's that there shouldn't be a break there, but there is. But it's all about walking in the Spirit. Well, you see somebody who's gotten snared. They've fallen down. They're stuck. You need to get them up and get them going again. Well, how does that happen? It says, confront such a one, you who are spiritual, okay? Confront such a one, what? In a spirit of gentleness. And that word confront means restore. It's like mending two bones or fixing nets. It takes time. And it says, if you bear one another's burdens where you're helping them walk, you're carrying their burden, you're helping them along for a time, it says, what do you do when you do that? You fulfill the law of Christ. Folks, conflict exists in the church so we can obey this. This is one of the one another's. Conflict is allowed by God, even caused by God, not the sinful conflict, but he allows conflict so that we can learn from it and become more refined, both as individuals and as a church. But folks, we have to work at it. It's not easy. Anyone been involved in in trying to help somebody get restored to God or restored to somebody else? Yeah, it's not easy, is it? It takes time, a lot of prayer, a lot of like, uh uh-oh, what's going to happen here? That next phone call, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, is that them? It takes time, but folks, it's worth it. It's worth it because you get to see God at work as you take those chances, you see God working in in this process as you obey Knees trembling. But you see God at work to bring peace. Again, guys, the world doesn't know this kind of peace. Right? We have the solution in Jesus Christ. We're not perfect, but we are called to be salt and light in this environment by exhibiting what the Prince of Peace has to offer. Amen? Let's do that. And again, I'll I'll do this. I've done this for each one of the Beatitudes. We have to ask before we go on to the next one, am I a peacemaker? Or, and I'm talking about generally, your general characteristic, you know you, I don't. Or am I a peace faker? I run away. I deny. I don't even deal with it. Or am I a peace breaker? I'm good at conflict. Conflict swirls around me. Ask yourself that. Do I actively search out or to seek to be someone who promotes and works for peace? Being a minister of reconciliation. Ask yourself, 
Because do you want God's blessing? Blessed are the what? Peacemakers. Do I really care for another's enough to help in the peace process? Do I care? Because if you don't love people, you won't do it. Because it's too much of a hassle. But wait, you, Jesus says you'll know them by their what again? What? By their love? Folks, we, we, peacemaking is going to take hard work, but we've got to do it. How many of you will do it imperfectly? Everyone raise your hand, because you will. But you know what? It doesn't mean we should stop trying. And you know what? The more you do it, guess what happens? The better you get at it. Okay, that's just peacemaking. <laughs> oh, that we would be a church that exhibits that in a world gone crazy, right? The next one. Lord, help me to remain faithful when opposed for your sake. And that's, again, verses 10 through 12. As I read this, though, notice after verse 10, something changes. Listen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, that closes up the Beatitudes. So really, this is the last Beatitude. Verses 11 and 12 are an explanation. Because... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now blessed are the, uh, those persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a, it's a, it's a way of how they taught. But blessed are you, verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What was the point I was trying to make? He switches from third person, those, to second person, you. Oh, well, he's doing this for a reason. Keep listening. Rejoice and be glad. Be exceedingly glad for persecution. Yeah. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is actually the last point on this passage, but I'm going to do it at the beginning. Folks, he was claiming to be God by what he just did here. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, blessed are you, or blessed are those, I'm sorry, those, and then he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, you know, insults, revilings, that kind of stuff. But then he says, because when you're, when you're persecuted in this way, like the prophets of old, and when the prophets of old were persecuted, who were they persecuted for? For declaring whose message? Yahweh gods, the Lord God. Remember the prophets? That's who they would speak on. Now he's saying, blessed are you, like the prophets of old, when you're persecuted, for whose sake? For his sake. Don't miss that what Jesus is doing here, a man teaching these people, he just said, basically, I'm God. Don't miss that. Now he's saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted for being a jerk at the workplace. He doesn't say that. What kind of persecution? For righteousness' sake, for the sake of Jesus, right? Sometimes we get in trouble at work or with our friends and family, not because we're Christians, but because we're being a pill, right? And we have to own that, okay? So we're talking about real persecution. Matter of fact, when we talk about persecution, here in America, yes, there's persecution. There's insults. There's, there's slander. But there's not often the persecution that is really behind a lot of this, but also what we see around the world, right? I mean, there's, there was more killed in the last decade than were killed at the time of Jesus in the first century. There is an amazing amount of deaths around the world because of the name of Christ that we don't often hear about. 
I mean, uh, we, you did remember, those of you who were here last summer, we watched the videos by Tim Kazee, right? Dispatches from the front. There's amazing, uh, well, it's amazing is not the right word, horrendous uh, persecution going on. And yet to see people shining, the church of the living God shining in the darkest of places despite the persecution. Well, guess what? Blessed are they. But same with us. Blessed are we when we suffer for his sake. Persecution goes all the way from, you know, insults, like he mentions here, and slander, all the way to death. If we think we're better than, you know, better than other people, let's think about just some of the disciples and and the persecution they faced or the end of their lives. Uh, Well, we all know that Judas Iscariot, he, he betrayed the Lord and hung himself. But Peter, when he faced the end of his life, he was going to be crucified. That was going to be, that was his judgment. But he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. So they crucified him upside down. Is that persecution? Oh, yeah. Andrew, his brother, died on a cross in, in a Grecian colony, uh, Patre. I don't know if I said that right. James, the younger brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, from where they say it happened, it could have been a, a, a fall of more than 300 feet. But to make sure that he died, he was beaten with clubs. Why? Because he taught and preached and believed in and was willing to die for the message, hey, my brother is God. He is the Savior and you have to believe in him. Imagine having to say that. Wouldn't that be unusual? Oh, my brother's God. <laughs> wow. Bartholomew was flayed alive in Armenia. You know what flayed means? You cut your skin and just pull it off. Flayed alive. I believe that's what it is. Maybe I got that wrong. He, he got killed. James, the elder son of Zebedee, was beheaded at Jerusalem. Thomas, the doubter, was run through the body with a lance in the East Indies. Philip was hanged against a pillar in Hierapolis. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. Simon died on a cross in Persia. Eusebius, a a later Christian, this is about him. When Emperor Valens threatened Eusebius with confiscation of all of his goods and torture and banishment or even death, the courageous Christian replied, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. Things change, don't they? When you become a Christian, we have a whole different perspective, a whole different hope. That's just the face of persecution, but there's more to it. Persecution, did you know, is a gift? It's called a blessing here for those who are persecuted, but it's also a gift Philippians 1.29, right? Who, who have, you know, there's, uh, uh, I'm going to go with 129, so I say it right and don't brutalize it. So Philippians 1.29. I'll start actually in verse 27 because it makes better sense. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's writing from prison to these Philippian Christians. So that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponent's persecution. 
But this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is? For it has been granted to you. That word grant, gifted, graced to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, salvation, yes. And here's another, there's the second part of the grant. But also suffer for his sake. Suffering is a gift from God. A blessing from God. Really? Well, it's a sign that you belong to the king. Because when you suffer for righteousness sake, not, again, not for being a pill at work or some or bad neighbor, but you're suffering for righteousness. Well, what does that do to the world? What well, says that the message that we preach and we live out is actually it's a stench of death to those who are perishing. It says that. And then it says it's a, a fragrance or aroma of life to those who are being saved. So some people, when they see you, are like, oh my goodness, I want that. Because God is drawing them and he's using you to do that. But then some, you're a stench of death and they'll hate you for it. Because light, because remember, we're light. Light exposes what? Darkness. And darkness hates the light, John 3. And they'll hate you for it because didn't they hate our Lord first? And he told us they'd hate you too. So persecution is, a, is surely one of the signs, hey, you're, you belong to the king. It's for righteousness sake. Now, we're not, we're, by the way, we're nowhere commanded to seek out persecution. We're, we're commanded, though, in the midst of persecution, do what? It says rejoice and be glad and consider it a gift. Yeah, there's cheering there. Rejoice and be glad. But suffering does something else too. How many of you have changed in the course of your life? You've changed during the good times or you've changed more during the tough times? Kind of a rhetorical question, right? Well, suffering does. It's a, it's a, it gives ample opportunity for us to change and grow because we see our weakness, we see our sin, and we fall at the feet of our Savior and say, help me. And he's like, oh, good, finally. Because most of us spend of our, our lives saying, God, thank you for saving me. I needed that. But now look and see what I can do. And he's like, well, gosh. And then we have to get to the end of ourselves. And then he can start working, right? Paul said it. I have this weakness, this thorn in the flesh. Please remove it, Lord. And the Lord says, no. I want you to have it. Why? Because in your weakness, God is strong. My grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. Persecution helps us realize that. I'm all over my notes here, so I'm just going to draw it here. I, I think we've said it enough to realize it's a blessing from God. And it's a declaration to the world that as we suffer, and we suffer with joy. Matter of fact, in Acts, I've been preaching through that. It has been four months since we've been in Acts. Can't wait to get back to it. But what did the church do in persecution? Oh, Lord, please remove it from us. That's not what they prayed. They prayed, Lord, give us more boldness. Thank you for letting us suffer for your name's sake. I feel like a wimp Christian reading that. But Lord, the Lord, may he grant us the strength in the midst of it to shine brightly for him. Folks, we need to be a church, we are, we're so distinct that we belong to him that maybe persecution would happen. I'm not saying seek it out, like I said, but again, 
do people notice that we're different or that we're just good people who go to church on Sunday? Or is there something about different about how we carry ourselves at work, in the decisions we make, the jokes that we partake in, at, at play? I go surfing with friends. Can they tell I'm different? Or am I just like all the other guys out there scrambling and trying to grab a wave and be a jerk? Or is there something different? Or in your family, do your, do your, the people who know you best are your family. Do they see a difference? They know you best, and guess what? They're watching. Are we distinctly his, so much so that the darkness would be offended by us and the righteousness that we display that's from Jesus Christ? Does that make sense? So both these things, these are, these are incredibly hard to, uh, to carry out, but, it, but by his grace and through his power, we can. And folks, we need to be a church that displays all these character traits for sure. But God, we're in, we're, we're in a world gone crazy right now, right? It, it could be worse. I understand that. But here's the deal. We have been called to be salt and light, salty, distinctly his, salty that preserves, light that exposes, light that shows people the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, when Jesus came, he was the light that was dawning in Galilee of the Gentiles, a light to the nations, and we are called to be the same. So may these character traits be us in increasing fashion. But here's the deal. We need to do this with each other. I mentioned that earlier. We have been united to each other, and may we be a church that helps each other. Because right now, this format is, you're all looking at me. It's all one way. But folks, you need to be in relationships where you're like this, looking at each other getting to know each other, calling each other out, encouraging each other, loving each other, praying for each other. All the one another's cannot happen to its fullest extent right here, right now. This is not a one anothering place right now, right? The one another's happen when you're in close relationships. You need it, I need it. So that's my final exhortation. There'll be one of the slides you'll see about flocks, but there's women's studies, men's studies, You need to be in close relationships so we can help each other live this out. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for um, just our time in your word. Lord, we, we fall so far short in so many ways, but at the same time, we're told that this is what we are. We are blessed because we're in you, and this is true of us. We have your righteousness. But Lord, practically, we want to see this grow in us and in this church so that we would great, to greater degrees reflect your glory to a watching world, for them to see the peace and the hope and the forgiveness and the love that is distinctly different that comes from you. So I just pray for that, God. I pray that that would be true in us and through us, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. So we pray all these things, Lord, and we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.